Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Uh, Happy Father's Day. Also, I want to echo everything Jixon has said. We value you so much, fathers uh, and grandfathers who have poured into their kids and grandkids. We we appreciate you and all that you do. Um, You are best when you reflect the Heavenly Father. Amen? So may that be the case for you today and beyond. Again, I'm, I'm glad to be back here. Uh, thank you for lending me out to Northwood Community Church last week. Again, their pastor <clears throat> uh, had just had his third baby, Oliver. It was good to be encouraged by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow members of our denomination. They're an EFCA church, one of the closer EFCA churches, which is still kind of wild to me, coming from the Midwest, where there's an EFCA church on every church corner. But uh, anyway, fun to be with them, but it's good to be home to be home with the church family. Uh, and I knew, I just knew, that Pastor Andrew would deliver the word faithfully here, and he did. So I wanted to encourage Pastor Andrew in front of the congregation, your delivery of the word of God last week was faithful and welcomed, and we appreciate it. Can we give him uh, some thanks? <clears throat> I was blessed by it, and uh, I was challenged by it, so thank you. Jesus has just descended from the mountain. That's where Andrew picked up. He gave his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a lot of time there. Hopefully you remember some of it. Of course, that sermon ended with the crowd, you remember, marveling at Jesus' authority and his teaching. You remember that? The crowd marveling at his authority. But then, immediately, Jesus demonstrated his authority again over human bodies, over sickness and disease. Immediately after, he demonstrated his teaching authority. And Matthew wrote the gospel that way on purpose. Okay, so the, thir- the sermon was, again, Jesus's spoken authority, and the healings are Jesus's authority demonstrated to human bodies. But his authority over specific things will continue to be demonstrated throughout chapter 8 and even into chapter 9. This week, in verses 18 through 22, Matthew records some words of Christ spoken to two separate men, two would-be followers of Jesus. So interspersed with all these great miracles of Jesus in this chapter is a startling and even shocking claim that Jesus places on his disciples. The way Matthew sets up this section of the gospel is, is really interesting and worth, worth noting, worth concentrating on for a second. Remember, remember this. Every bit of the scriptures is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every bit. Not just the thoughts and ideas, but the way sentences are put together. The way the structure of a book is put together. This sermon was Jesus' authority and he's going to continue to demonstrate that authority over and over and over again over different things. That's on purpose. We can learn a lot by looking at the author's narrative goal for a section. When You just take a step back and look at something as a whole. And so this small section that we'll read today is bracketed by three healings before, which Andrew covered. He demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease. Andrew, again, did an excellent job walking us through the significance of each one of those how Jesus does something differently with each person, how each person represents something differently. And then today's text is bracketed on the end by three miracles. So three miracles before, three miracles afterwards. 
the calming of the storm, which is a demonstration of his authority over creation, the exorcism of two demoniacs at the same time, demonstrating his authority over the spiritual realm, and then the healing of a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9, where Jesus, before the healing, significantly forgives the man's sins, which is a demonstration of his authority to dispense grace. So this whole section of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 are an exploration of authority, even the kingship of Jesus over every possible realm of human life. It's magnificent. It's all-encompassing. Jesus is king. Praise the Lord. Remember we went over this at Easter. When I say praise the Lord, you say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And when I say hallelujah, you say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There you go. We're getting it. We'll get to each of these sections in due time, okay? But today, we want to see what our text is dealing with, because Jesus doesn't seem to do any great miracles. So how does it fit in? Let's read it and find out. Let's stand and read Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Again, Matthew 8, 18 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we come before your word humbly and ask that you would open it up to us, make our minds and hearts ready to receive it, mold our lives around it. We pray for your grace toward us, for understanding and for wisdom. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18 tells us that Jesus looks around and he sees a crowd. Seeing the crowd, he orders his disciples to go to the other side. There's not a lot of detail there. We're going to have to rely upon some cultural and textual context to see what's going on. We can fill in the blanks pretty easily. Remember, Jesus is in Capernaum, okay, northern part of the land of Israel. Right on the bank, it's a city, right on the bank of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a big lake. Great crowds had gathered around Jesus while he preached on the side of a hill. That's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And they followed him down that hill while he resumed his healing ministry. Okay, but it's not until verse 14 where Jesus seems to get a little space from the crowd. Okay, entering Peter's house, he gets a little bit of a reprieve, maybe even a good night's sleep. Okay, but now <clears throat> it seems that Jesus has spent another day surrounded by the crowds. Verse 24, Jesus is asleep later on. On the boat, he's asleep, which means it's probably late in the day or around evening time when our text takes place today. Jesus sees the crowd and this prompts him to go to the other side, which means go over to the other side of the lake. It was Jesus' habit to spend time alone or with his close disciples in the evening. We'll see that pattern emerge in the Gospels. 
But it's a little bit odd that Jesus wants to go to the other side of the lake. That's, that should stand out to you a little bit here. Across the lake was an area known as the Decapolis, which just means ten cities. Ten cities. There were ten Greek non-Jewish cities. So when Jesus says he wants to go to the other side, he's saying he wants to go over to the Gentiles, which is odd. Of course, Jesus wants to demonstrate his authority, right? Even amongst the Gentiles, which he'll do. But I would have liked to have heard the disciples' response when he orders them to get a boat ready to go over to the other side, to the Gentiles. They had not been there before, maybe. Why would they go over to Gentiles? So that's the setting. That's what's happening around Jesus, verse 18 specifically. The disciples are getting things ready, and two different men come to Jesus during those preparations, those short moments before they take off. There's no healings here, no exorcisms or any great miracles, right in the midst of a ton of them. Instead, we find two thought-provoking and providential interactions. This passage is all about what it means to follow Jesus. We have two guys, a scribe and another identified as a disciple. One seems eager and another seems under-eager. Maybe the first is over-eager. One makes a promise too quickly that he doesn't understand. One is too slow to heed the call. Jesus wants his disciples to consider the cost of discipleship and prioritize following him above all else. He wants us to consider two items when it comes to discipleship. Two items. First, Jesus wants the scribe, and therefore all of us, to consider the cost. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's verse 19. Some of your Bibles might say that this man was a teacher of the law, which is exactly what scribes were. They were experts, Bible teachers. They knew their stuff. They wrote commentaries. Okay, so when a scribe talks, he should know what he's talking about. Often the Gospels present the scribes as bad guys opposed to Jesus. But here we find a different sort of scribe. Not completely unusual. They pop up here and there in the Gospels. This is one of those instances where a scribe is not just completely framed as bad. He wants to follow Jesus. Now, it's not a good sign that he calls him teacher. He says, teacher, I will follow. Uh, even though it would have been closer to something like rabbi, which is honoring. It's a good title to give Jesus. It would have been perfectly respectable for the time, and the scribe himself would have been a teacher. But whenever the Gospel of Matthew shows us someone who calls Jesus teacher, they're never a true disciple. That's a unique feature of the Gospel of Matthew. It's not true in the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke, but it is true for Matthew, so it should send up warning signals. And it doesn't mean that this guy's trying to trick Jesus or something like that. By all accounts, this guy seems sincere and earnest in his statement. He really does mean to follow Jesus wherever he might go, but there's a problem. And Jesus quickly points it out. He says, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the first of two striking, even shocking statements Jesus makes in our text today. We'll have to consider his words really carefully to understand what he means. But in reality, it's, it's quite simple. Unlike small, vulnerable animals who, this, who have a place to sleep, the Son of Man doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a bed. So why would that throw the scribe off? Better, better question. Why are those exact words what the scribe needs to hear? Jesus, in fact, did have a place to lay his head in the city of Capernaum. Remember chapter 4, verse 13, Matthew tells us, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And it seems like he most likely stayed with Simon Peter in his home while he lived there. That's why he immediately goes to Simon Peter's house after the Sermon on the Mount. And in other places, Jesus was shown all kinds of hospitality and given a place to stay, like with Mary and Martha in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. So when people use this passage to suggest that Jesus was homeless or something like that, they're not quite right. So what does Jesus mean when he says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? It means several things, three things. First, it means that following Jesus is not typically a life full of money and possessions. Jesus may not have been homeless, especially in the modern understanding of that word, but he was by no means a rich man. Are you familiar with the origin story of the Buddha? Buddha was a really wealthy prince who was sheltered by his father away from the world, grew up in a palace, wasn't allowed to leave the palace, had a cushy life. And then he chose to live an austere life. He gave that up. That's not Jesus' origin story. Jesus was the son of a poor carpenter. He didn't come from money. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. To quote the ever-eloquent Credence Clearwater Revival... He was no fortunate son. And he stayed that way. Jesus never owned a home. He didn't have a savings account. He didn't have a 401k. Jesus' material possessions were few. And he was content. This scribe, as a student of the law, is probably looking for a teacher greater than himself to learn from so that he can be successful in the future, to pad his resume. That's a little bit speculative, maybe. That's not in the text. But that was the normal way of life. That was the normal thing to do. A young scribe would find an older teacher to latch onto, to learn from, and grow into greater than his teacher. If the scribe expected, then, that following Jesus would be a life eventually leading to wealth and fame and prosperity, he was wrong. Does God bless us financially? Yes. Praise praise the Lord. Of course he does. But we should never mistake financial wealth as the goal of the Christian life. In fact, the norm of the Christian life throughout the centuries, throughout the 2,000 history, the 2,000 year history of the church has been that more often of poverty. 
And so it is today, actually. Most of the Christians living in the world today are poor. We are the outliers here in the West. The gospel has always spoken powerfully to the poor and the lowly. Because in the gospel, get this, in the gospel, the poor quickly understand their spiritual poverty. That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 19, some very strong words, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So if the scribe was expecting that following Jesus meant following him into wealth, he was wrong. He had not counted the cost. Second, as an itinerant preacher, Jesus didn't have his own home that he owned and went to every night. He traveled around. Jesus lived a nomadic life. He was constantly on the road. He lived there with his disciples, often dependent upon the hospitality of others. And when he didn't get it, he slept outside. He slept in a boat, like we'll find out in 24. This was the life the Father called him to lead. It wasn't glamorous. He didn't have a palace. He didn't have a pleasant little cottage. He didn't even have his own small apartment. The mission that the Father had for the Son was of the utmost importance. Jesus did whatever was required of him, including sleeping outside in the cold if he had to. So was the scribe ready for that? Had he considered the places Jesus might take him? The uncomfortable places? Obviously not. Jesus was about to go over to the other side The other side of the Sea of Galilee, no self-respecting scribe would willingly go over to the Decapolis and spend real spiritual time with Gentiles. That would make him unclean. So did the scribe know that following Jesus means going places? He never would have gone on his own. Did he know that following Jesus meant a willingness to not have somewhere to lay his head? The great missionaries through the ages understood that. Of course, there were the apostles like Paul who endured shipwreck and disaster in order to bring the gospel all over the Roman Empire. Church tradition even says that the apostle Thomas traveled all the way to India to bring the gospel. All the apostles went somewhere with the message and they were willing to go wherever they were called, whatever it took That's been the case throughout church history. Francis of Assisi was willing to go all over Europe and beyond, and he did. William Carey was willing to live in the wild of India in 1800. Hudson Taylor was willing to do the same in China. Adoniram Judson was willing to do the same in Burma. There are too many examples to count from history. The people of God, the disciples of Jesus Christ... Real disciples understand that their lives will often look like their saviors. And for them, it is a joy. This is the case for missionaries that we support today. We support people serving the Lord all around the globe. Not living romantic, glamorous missionary lives. Missionaries often have difficult lives with a heavy burden. Not doing the things they'd really like to do. 
because they have to do things like actually care for people medically. Disciples of Jesus are willing to go where they are called, no matter the circumstances. Was the scribe ready for that? Had he counted the cost of following Jesus, even if it meant sleeping in a boat and talking to Gentiles? Probably not. Third, Jesus' statement hints at his rejection. Unlike these animals that have a home, Jesus had been kicked out of his. In Luke 4, we read the account of Jesus being rejected from Nazareth. You know the story. After reading from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue, Jesus applies the scripture to himself. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, who's that guy? Isn't he the carpenter's boy? The whole congregation then revolts against him and tries to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus miraculously gets away. But you think they welcomed him back? In that sense, he couldn't even lay his head in his childhood home. We'll see that throughout the gospel, the leaders of Israel and the people of Israel will slowly begin to reject Jesus. He has a crowd now, but that won't last. It will actually culminate with the crowd demanding his crucifixion. Is the scribe ready for that? Is the scribe ready to be rejected like Jesus? The 12 disciples, the closest people to Jesus, weren't even ready for that. They all deserted him by the end. Are we ready for that kind of rejection? Disciples of Jesus are willing to suffer rejection from family and friends and even large parts of society in order to follow their king. Are you willing to follow Jesus? even if it means rejection. The words of Jesus cut sharply to the heart of the issue for the scribe. Following Jesus means a lack of financial security. It means going wherever he calls. It means being willing to suffer rejection. Let's examine our hearts. Have you considered those things? Often the Christian life is presented in evangelism as a life only filled with joy and peace. As if God's only intention for you is to give you everything that will make you happy. Who of us, if approached by someone like this scribe, would discourage him from following Jesus? Hopefully, none of us, right? We'd eagerly share the gospel with them. But Jesus wants this guy to count the cost. He wants him to consider the promise that he's making. I will follow you wherever you go. And each of us need to do the same. Following Jesus is not always comfortable. Often it's even painful as he cuts away sin in our lives. Sin we're comfortable with and like. Or when he calls us to love a particular person that, man, we really don't want to love. Or calls us to go to a place that we really didn't see ourselves going to. Or calls us to serve in a way that we really don't think we're gifted in or want to serve. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? 
It seems like the scribe had not. So Jesus' answer was exactly what the scribe needed to hear. But there's something else really significant about Jesus' response to the scribe. Jesus uses the phrase, son of man, to refer to himself. This is the, the very first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus calls himself the son of man. And he's going to use it around 30 times in this Gospel. So it's worth mentioning right here to be aware of as we see it going forward. A lot of ink has been spilt over why Jesus chose this title for himself and how he uses it. You see, it wasn't a common saying that people used for themselves, nor was it a typical name used for the Messiah, at least at the time of Christ, which gives us a bit of a clue as for why Jesus used it so often. You see, there were a lot of titles Jesus could have picked for himself, a lot of good messianic titles, But the common ones that everybody knew were all tied up in Israel's expectation for a king that would kick out Rome and reestablish the Davidic throne right there and then. So Jesus chose something that wasn't tied up in that. Yet, it has kingly implications. The Gospel of Matthew is written in Greek, okay, like the rest of the New Testament. But Jesus is probably speaking here to his disciples and to the crowd, to these men specifically, in Aramaic. That would be the, the common everyday language of, of Jewish men, especially when talking to somebody like a scribe. And the Aramaic form of this title is something more like the human being, which is interesting, or the man, something that simple. So Jesus calls himself the human being when he says he doesn't have a place to lay his head. It's in Daniel 7 where we find this title applied to the Messiah. Daniel 7, 13 says this. Listen carefully. This is really important. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There it is. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, that is, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This prophecy is talking about the Messiah in really rich kingly language, telling us the son of man is not just king but divine. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that would never end. Jesus is the son of man. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. (laughs) Jesus is king. Praise the Lord. The title son of man highlights the divinity and lordship of Christ. It's a really significant thing to call yourself, but it was obscure enough for nobody to catch on. And it's not even how Jesus uses the title here. Did you notice that? In fact, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, to emphasize here his humanity, his lowliness, and even his humiliation. And he uses it to great effect. The one who would come in glory and receive a kingdom, who would be given all authority and dominion, the one who is king has nowhere to lay his head. 
And if that's not the perfect picture of the incarnation, I don't know what is. Jesus is the king of all creation, and he is willing to take on flesh and be humiliated for the sake of our sin. The son of man was willing to be the suffering servant. So did the scribe pick up on all of that in the moment? Probably not. But I'm sure, as a teacher of the law, somebody familiar with the scriptures, he was left with a lot to ponder. If there's anyone worth risking security and safety and money for, if there's anyone worth following to the craziest places and most dangerous places, if there's anyone worth giving up friends, family, and society for, it's the son of man. So we must count the cost of discipleship. But we, we need to remember that Jesus is worth any cost. Amen? Second, Jesus wants the Son of Man, and therefore all of us, to heed the call. To heed the call. Another of the disciples said to him, this is verse 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. <clears throat> the first man, the scribe, didn't understand what he was signing up for. He was over-eager. He over-promised. That doesn't seem like the case here. In fact, the second man is seeking permission to delay his discipleship. And he has a pretty rock-solid reason. I mean, he wants to bury his father. But Jesus doesn't give permission. Even for that. His words... <laughs> His words are startling and even shocking. Follow me and leave the, the dead to bury their own dead. Don't go and bury your own father. Leave the, the burial for the dead to take care of. I mean, follow me. Now again, I guess, I'd guess most of us wouldn't respond to this disciple like that if they're asking permission to bury their father. We might even read the words of Jesus here and think that he's at best being insensitive and at worst, asking this man to dishonor his parents. Now we know that Jesus never does that. He never endorses dishonoring parents. You can read about how Jesus tells, tells the scribes and Pharisees completely off in Matthew 15, because they're dishonoring their parents. So what is Jesus telling this man to do? There's a couple ways to interpret Jesus' response to see what's going on here. First and primary for us right now, so we can understand this passage at face value. That's how we should first always understand the scriptures. A man's father seems to have just died and the funeral is about to happen. So he asks Jesus for time to bury him. That's maybe the plainest reading of the text without putting on our, our goggles of cultural context. Even so, the point of the text is still clear. It's this, this is the point of the text. The person of Jesus Christ, the son of man, makes a greater demand on your life right now than every other earthly relationship. It's, it's worth laying aside your father's funeral 
for the sake of the call of Christ. And we need to sit with that for a second. Bring that to bear on our hearts. Is Jesus greater than anything or anyone else to you? It's a hard passage to wrestle with because it reveals certain relationships that we hold as more important than our relationship to the Lord. So let's not hesitate. Ask that question strongly of yourself. Where is Jesus really on your list of importance? But I think it's more helpful to understand a few things about the culture that enable us to understand the call that Jesus is making on this man's life. You see, in that culture, for the son to be away from his father's side when he's dying, talking to a teacher about discipleship by a lake would have been kind of unheard of, especially if this is the oldest son, which it seems like he is. He would be at his father's side as he's dying. Or, like the rest of the crowd, he'd be bringing his father to receive healing. In that culture, two things allow this son to be with Jesus right now, away from home in light of his dead or dying father. Two things. First, the father could have died a while ago, and this man wants to take time to move the body to a different tomb. That sounds odd. We don't do that, but they did. It was a common practice that would occur around a year after the death of someone, especially an important patriarchal figure in a family. In light of that, Jesus' response makes more sense. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Sounds like leave your father where he is and follow me. Another understanding, and probably the most likely understanding, is that this man is asking to delay his discipleship until his elderly and maybe sickly father passes away and all the funeral proceedings are taken care of, including the moving of the body from the first tomb to the better tomb. In that case... The man is asking potentially to delay his discipleship for years so that he can receive his inheritance, set up his household, and become established as the head of the family. Jesus' response to him, let the dead bury their own dead, becomes something like, let the rest of your family, the spiritually dead, bury the dead. In that culture, whatever the case may be with this guy's father, whether he had just died, had died a while ago, or had yet to die, Jesus' response would have been incredibly shocking, jarring, and would have had the same point. Follow me now, don't delay. Follow me now, don't delay. Our discipleship isn't something we can put off until our lives are more in order. It's not something we can just pick up later when it's more convenient for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls all men and women to pick up their cross and follow Jesus now. There's no time to wrap up your affairs. There's no time to get better established in your job or marriage or family. Now is the time to follow Jesus. The claims of the kingdom are absolute and immediate. The king is calling you to join him. So what's standing in your way? What's standing in your way this morning? What's keeping you from fully following Jesus? Is it a personal sin? 
that you're holding on to, that you're afraid of revealing. Repent. Lay it aside. Is it societal pressure? Or a a particular job you really like that you know God wants you to move from? Is that what you hold dear? Lay it aside. As Jesus points out, even family can become an idol that keeps us from fully following Jesus. A, A father even. And if that idea makes you uncomfortable, then buckle up because this isn't the last time Jesus will say something like that in this gospel. So we have to reckon with it. The call that Jesus places on disciples is immediate and powerful. But the cost of discipleship is great. These two things, these two answers to these two men must be taken together. You see, there must not be anything in the way, in your way of following Jesus. Everything needs to be laid aside if it is keeping you from him. But you should expect to lay yourself aside in the pursuit of that relationship, in the pursuit of real discipleship. The astounding wonder of the Christian life is that by the power of the Spirit, we will stop prioritizing things other than Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will count the cost and heed the call of discipleship. And in the end, amidst all these miraculous occurrences in Matthew 8 and 9, all of these demonstrations of Jesus' authority, Jesus demonstrates his authority here too. He alone has the authority to make this kind of claim on your life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of man. So it's time to count the cost. And it's time to heed the call. Many of us in this room today have been disciples for decades. But that doesn't mean there aren't things that pop up in our lives that we have to constantly lay aside and pursue Jesus with, even if it costs us something. There are some in this room today who, who are not disciples, who have not counted the cost of what will, it will actually cost them and have not seen the glory of the future where they will gain all things as they live in the kingdom that Jesus Christ rules over. It's time to lay things aside. Don't delay any longer. Believe the gospel, repent, and join the family, join the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of laying aside the things that we hold dear, of giving up the things that we love to pursue you. Not that we expect a better, more glamorous life, but we know that you are the only thing that gives worth. That a life lived for Jesus Christ is the only life worth living. We recognize that this morning. Lord, I I lift up anybody in this room today who has not 
first counted the cost of what being a disciple of Jesus Christ actually means. Lord, if there are those here today who have expected one thing and have gotten another and are jaded or burnt out, I pray for your grace and your peace for them. That you would reorder their expectations for what it means to follow you. That they would follow you wherever you would call them, even to the most uncomfortable and dangerous places, places they wouldn't have ever wanted to go. Lord, for those today who have delayed, who have not picked up their cross and followed you, Lord, I pray for grace for them now to be moved by the Spirit, to heed the call to follow you with all of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.